Bill, good morning. I'm going to be preaching from Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And uh, you'll have to excuse my voice this morning. I don't know from the, from the uh, flying and traveling, I don't know if my voice just feels like it's, it's gone out a bit, so I'm sorry for that. Um, and I also, the last six months in school, we have been working through the prophets and it's been all judgment passages. We've been working through Ezekiel. We've been working through this here book, Amos. And it's, it's all judgment passages, everything we've been preaching. And to top it off, all of our preaching the last six months has been to non-believers. And so all of everything's been geared in that direction. And I was like, oh, I wanted to, I didn't want to show back up after being gone six months and preach on judgment. <laughs> but this is where we're at in the class. And it's just... To try to switch over at this point, it was just not enough time. And I actually got a, uh, I had to go preach at a local church uh, there in Chicago. And I got assigned a task, uh, a text to preach. And it was Matthew 7, judgment again. <laughs> so everything I've been in, in is judgment. But I want to try to show you from this text that actually judgment preaching isn't uh, doom and gloom. It's not... Um, uh, it's, it's not just the, the, the fury and the anger of God, but it actually is, it's God's mercy to people when he preaches judgment to them. And so I titled this sermon, No, Seriously. <laughs> and that's because of the, the context of the text here. It's God has pronounced judgment on Israel, God's people. And in this text here, it's like he's just like reaffirming like, no, Israel, Judgment's coming to you, my people. And I have uh, cut it up into three pieces. Uh, verses 1 through 2, the logic of the heart. Verses 3 through 7, the logic of nature. And then 7 and 8, the mercy of God. And let me just say a prayer real quickly. Well, Father, thank you, Lord, for you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for, uh, Lord, everything that you do in our lives. The, the way, Lord, that um, you interact us together, guide our steps. Father, grow us, stretch us. You don't leave us. Father, in, in places that would be um, to our detriment, but Lord, you, you grab us and you pull us out and you strengthen us. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for these words, Lord, of warning. Lord, I pray that we would always take them to heart, that we would um, always be self-reflective, Lord, in terms of your word. Um, grant that to us. Strengthen us through it, Lord, and may we live lives that bring you glory, Lord, in that... Um, Show the heart of faith and anticipation of standing before you, Lord. I pray that you would work that in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, Lord, for your glory and the good of your church. Amen. So title, No Seriously, and the argument I want to make is that judgment is inevitable for those who neglect the grace of God. Judgment is inevitable for those who neglect 
the grace of God. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sinner called, or preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And at that time, there was, it was called the First Great uh, Awakening. And there was a spiritual fervor in the land. And part of that was Whitfield and Edwards preaching. And it was, it was hard preaching. And, Sir, and Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, has always intrigued me because in our day, the concept of hard preaching or preaching judgment is very frowned upon. It's, it's very, it's, in, in our culture, we're very anti-conflict and, and, and anti-just meanness. It's <laughs> the, the, the gospel of the seculars is to be nice, and our gospel is that we, need, we must be holy. And, and so this, this concept of hard preaching has always been frowned on. And I've always wondered at that, like even uh, growing up and, and talking with people in the church, there's always this concept of like, oh, don't, don't want to hear the doom and gloom. Don't want to hear all that neg- negativity. People don't do well with negativity. It's under the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance, not this negative uh, judgmental talk. And so I've always been I've always been intrigued by Edward's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because while he preached it, he, he preached it as a guest preacher. It wasn't even his congregation. And he went in and preached this hard, hard sermon. If you ever read it, it's like, wow. And he did that at a, as he was visiting a church. And the story goes, as he preached it, people began to weep and people would crying out, how, must, how can I be saved? And, um, and it helped to, to further this great awakening that was happening up there in, in the eastern side of the country. And so that's always been in the back of my mind and always been there. And then as we always think of the Old Testament, and even people will say, well, I'm just, I like Jesus. I just, that God of the Old Testament, and I just, I, I don't see him in mixing. And, but as I look at this text, it's just something that stuck out to me, and I hope I can make it clear to you that it, it's, it's not a bad thing. So let's, let's begin. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel. To his servants, the prophets, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So, the logic of the heart. We see Amos, well, just a little bit of background. Amos 1, he starts out and he's casting, he's pronouncing judgment on the nations. He's, uh, he, say, he uses the term... <clears throat> Uh, for th- let me find it here. Uh, 
For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So it's like he's like, for these three transgressions, it's full. Your sin is full. And then he goes for four and now it's overflowing. And he goes through these and he's like, to Damascus, to Gaza, to Tyre, to Edom. And he's pronouncing these judgments. And Amos is preaching this to the people who, um, in Israel, he's from the southern region. He's preaching to Israel. And he's preaching all this judgment on the pagan nations, the Gentile nations. And what do you think Israel's doing at that as he's preaching that? Yeah, get them, God. Get these uncircumcised heathen. Get them. And then he says, for three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked, I will send fire upon Judah. And it's like, wait a minute, God, we are your people. We are the, the God of, we are the people of Yahweh. And then he moves on. For three transgressions of Israel. And for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money. And the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth. On the head of the helpless. Also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl. In order to profane my holy name. The people of Israel. The people of Judah had not only done what the other nations had done, but they had gone a step further in their sin. And this is where the Lord is, is speaking to Israel through the lips of Amos and saying, your sin is filled up and it is overflowing. And then he goes on, he says, Behold, I am weighed down beneath, as a wagon is weighed down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift. And the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. He's like, Israel, you're not going to escape this. This is not good. You're not, nothing you can do. Your strength, you're not going to escape what I am coming, going to bring down on you. And now to even further that, he goes now into Amos 3. And he says, hear this word of the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. You're not illegitimate children. You're not, you're not a people who has had no care. You're not a people who has not been shepherded by my love. But you are the sons of Israel. So therefore, I must judge you when you behave in this way. The sons of, Abra of, of Israel. You remember Israel, their forefather is Abraham. And Abraham came from the land of the Chaldeans. You remember God came to Abraham at that time, Abram. And he says, uh, up, I want to take you to a land that you do not know. And I'm going to make this land your home. And Abraham is a rich man. He's, he's settled in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, his family's there. This is a man who's, he's got it all. And God says, up, and I will bring you to a land that you don't even know. 
and make you a great nation and make you great and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then he says to Abraham, fear not, I am your, shore, your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so Abraham gets up out of earth, Chaldeans. It's just stunning. You think of the situation that Abraham was in. Just stunning. God comes to him, tells him to go and promises him reward. And Abraham forsakes everything and goes. And he leaves to this land and he's there. And his wealth, his wealth is with him. And he becomes even wealthier as he's there. And God promised him a son. And he's there and he goes, Lord, um, when I die, Eliezer, my, my uh, head steward, is going to get everything. Like you promised a son. You, you promised an inheritance. You promised children as, uh, to, to, to further my name, to make my name great. And God said, Abraham, come outside. And so he takes Abraham outside and tells him to look up at the sky. And he looks up at the sky. And you know when you look up at the sky when you're out in the country. I can do this in Womack very easily. Up in Womack, you look up, there's no lights coming from anywhere. And you can see the Milky Way and the stars. There's just, you, you can't even count them. And God says to Abraham, this is how many children you're going to have, Abraham. This is going to be the, the multitude of your lineage. And Abraham believed God, and God counted him righteous. And then the story goes on. He's, he's in the land. He's waiting on this child. It's been 25 years, and there's no children yet. Abraham is 100 years old now. Sarah is 90 years old, and there's no children. And God reestablishes the covenant with Abraham. He comes to him, meets him again, and says, this time next year, you'll have a son. And after 25 years of waiting, hope beyond hope, Abraham, good as dead, physically, Sarah's womb's done, a son is born, Isaac is born, this is quite the story, Abraham to Isaac. And he goes on, and Isaac has Jacob, and, and Jacob is a bit of a rascal. And one time Jacob wrestles, wrestles with God at night, and it's a little weird, but they wrestle all night long, and the sun is coming, and God says, you got to let me go, i got to go. And, and, and Jacob says, not until you bless me. And he's like, what is your name? Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob. It is now Israel. And so he lets him go. And the nation is blessed. Jacob has the 12 sons, the tribes of Israel. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the lineage. Uh, there is no greater family lineage than this lineage. The founding fathers of this nation, the, the old families of Europe, there is no greater lineage. So God says, therefore, I must judge you. How could you, Israel? You are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How could you? And so he goes on. He says, 
You were the entire family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. So he says, you're the sons of Israel. You are the family, the nation that I brought up from Israel. And so we know the story. Jacob has the 12 tribes and then there's a famine and the famine causes uh, them to have to go down into Egypt. But, but Joseph is already there because these, these rascal sons of Jacob sold their brother because of envy and jealousy uh, to get him out of, uh, to get him out of the, the family. Because they were going to try to kill him, but they, oh, we'll be kind, we'll sell you into slavery. They weren't a great people on their own. And so he sends them down there, and, they, and in the course of time, everybody ends up in Egypt. The famine causes everybody to have to go down. They're in Egypt, but they're prospering because of Joseph's wisdom through God. And they're living in the land of Goshen, but then time passes on. And the king, the pharaoh, forgets who they are. They become enslaved. Now God's people are enslaved, but this was according to God's plan. Because not only was God going to reveal himself to Israel at that time, he was going to reveal himself to the world through bringing them up out of Egypt. And so we have the people of Israel, the Hebrews in Egypt. And he says, I brought you up out of Israel as though like a father grabbing hold of his son's hand and walking him through a dangerous place and protecting him. He, Egypt was the mightiest nation on earth. And God comes down in his glory and takes them by the hand and walks them out. And he walks them through the sea. And he brings them out of bondage. He brings them out of slavery. And then he brings them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he reveals himself, his loving kindness and his provision for them. God was God was showing who he was to the people of Israel. He was showing his power and his might by rescuing them and then his tender care and love by providing for them the whole time in the desert. And so he comes to you and he comes to Israel at this point and says, how could you? You're the people of God. How could your sins exceed those of the Gentile nations around you? Judgment is inevitable. You give me no other choice. And then it's, he ends with, you only have I chosen. You only have I known. Among all the families of the earth, I have not set my love or my attention on any other nation like I have set it on you, Israel. I have known you. I have loved you. I have come into intimate relationship with you. And just to to highlight that, I just want to read you a quick passage. You don't have to turn to there, but I'm going to turn there real quick. Just to grab the, the weight of it. This is Ezekiel 16. This says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. This was like a baby that was born that was taken and thrown out and tossed in the field. He says, Israel, that was you. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field For you were bored on the day you were born. When I passed by you, 
and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. God passed by this throwaway baby, this rejected people that the world deemed as unworthy. And God walked by and put his love and attention on them and said, live. He loved Israel in no other way that any other nation has been loved like this nation. And so therefore he says, how could you, Israel? How could you? I think that when God starts off here in chapter 1 and he highlights all the Gentile nations around them, it's, it's acting as like a, a background just to put up the ugliness of Israel's sin in the light of Gentile sin, you, Israel, have surpassed them. You have done far worse. You have rejected my word. You have oppressed the poor. You have, you have loved the things I gave you above loving me. So, Israel, just by the logic of Love, the logic of the heart. How can I not judge you? How can I not cleanse you? And that's why we know judgment starts at the house of God. And as he's appealing to their hearts in this section here, the sons of Israel the love that he shows them and bringing them up out of Egypt and making them a nation. How he, how he came to them as a throwaway baby and, and made them live and, and has loved them in no other way. He's, and he's appealing to the logic of the heart. It's now, it's now, as he moves into this next section, as he's now turning and appealing to the logic of nature. To drive the point further here, Israel, that seriously... You are going to be judged. Seriously, this cannot happen. My people behave in this way and I not do something about it. And so he goes on. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? No. I don't just show up at the park one day and thought, I had a feeling that we should just walk together. It doesn't happen. It's illogical. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? No. Does a blind man fall? <clears throat> Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? No. Does a trap spring up from the earth when it is, captures nothing at all? No. This is the logic from nature. We know when we observe nature that there is an order to it, that there are laws that are so set, so we, we actually depend on, on how set these laws, how certain these laws are from nature. And that's what God is saying here. That these laws, that this logic from nature is so certain, Israel. You can bet it is certain that you're going to be judged. And these laws are so fixed that we, that scientists today, we can create rocket ships. And we could put men in these rocket ships, blast them into space, put them into orbit. They can orbit the moon. They can orbit the earth. We can send out machines that land on planets and survey the land because of the certainty of these laws. 
Even I as a farmer can take the, the laws of nature and farm my orchard this way. I, I know when to spray my orchard for bugs every year, not because every year on this state bugs come out, but because of uh, degree day patterns. We know that this bug emerges after so many days above 55 degrees. So when that model is met, I don't even have to find the bug. I go out and spray because of the certainty of nature. And we see it. Life is not, in nature is not random. There is just an order that just goes on and on and on. The sun comes up and goes down day after day. Summer, winter, spring, fall. It happens in order constantly. And I think it's from this nature of this this logic and this that we learn from nature that we even affects our morality. It even affects how we treat people. We know from nature it is not right to enslave a man. We know it is not right to take somebody and, and force them into labor and steal their labors. We know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. This was one of the things that God brought against Israel time and time again was their treatment of other people. They oppress the poor. They sell the righteous for silver. They, they sell the poor for a pair of sandals. This is not the behavior of God's people. And so... Israel, what was Israel's problem? They're the people of God. They got God's word. They've been loved by him. They've been put into a land. They've been given a nation. They've been given a place of worship. They have the temple, the place where you meet God. Israel had it all. But what did they do? They ended up hoping in those things that God gave them. It was the temple that was special to them, not the God of the temple. It was that they were sons of Abraham, not that they were children of God. What does Jesus say? Don't even begin to say you're the sons of Abraham. God can raise up children from rocks from Abraham. Don't count on anything apart from me. They would say, and Jeremiah tells us, they, as he preached his judgment to them, he, they would say, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. We've got the temple. We're the people of God. We're good. How do we do that as the church? What's our temple? Is it our doctrines? Is it, is it the once saved, once saved, once saved? Doesn't matter how I live. Election, election, election. Can't lose it. Isn't that essentially what Israel was doing here? Because they were the chosen of God. They, were, they had the temple. They had the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the lineage. They had everything. And that's what they were basing their righteousness on was in what they had and not the God who saved them. And I see it so often in the church. We do it over and over again. Because I got Jesus, you know, because I got the temple, 
we're okay. I mean, of course, you've got to say a little prayer and send it up, you know, but that's the attitude Israel had. It was almost like the temple and the things that God gave them were like a rabbit's foot. It was their ticket, their golden ticket. And sometimes when I talk to believers, they talk as though Jesus is a rabbit's foot. And brothers, sisters, that cannot be our heart when it comes to Jesus. Jesus to us must be the most precious thing that our heart, that the frame of our mind, the orientation of our thinking, our attitudes are all controlled because of our love and faith in Him, not because of stuff we have or the doctrine we hold on so dearly to the, ex- to the exclusion of every other doctrine that we don't harmonize and then we go into error. This is exactly what Israel did. And we learn in uh, 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things were written for our admonition. These things were written, all of the Old Testament, these stories of Amos, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, these preachers of judgment. It was written for our benefit so that we would look at Israel. We'd look at these preachings of judgment. We'd look at their behavior and we would check ourselves and make sure that we are not going down that same path. It's so easy to slide into that path. So easy. And so he says, a lion has roared. Who shall not fear? God has spoken. How can the prophet not speak? And this is what blew me away as I was studying the prophets these last six months. When God roars in judgment, oh, brothers and sisters, it is mercy. It is grace. Because God did not have to roar. He did not have to send you a warning. Israel at this time, in the midst of this proclamation of judgment, should hear this warning, this judgment, and repent. He could have came down like this and squashed him with no roaring. But he's roaring. He's having mercy. He's calling them to repentance and saying, you, be- you behave like this. Judgment is coming. It is certain. It is inevitable. Because he goes on in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Seek me that you may live. In the midst of preaching judgment, God said, seek me that you may live. The purpose of preaching judgment is to waken our souls up and to sober us up. That God, when he comes and saves us, he doesn't just do it forensically and pronounce us uh, just but he transforms us. He literally makes us his children and we walk in his ways through faith. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. When Edwards preached the, the, the sermon, Sinners as of in, a hand, in the Hands of an Angry God, it's not like God's up there and he's just getting his jollies off of 
destroying people. God is not like that at all. God says, come to me, seek me, and I will give you life. But he does it through the preaching of warning, the preaching of judgment, so that our souls will be awakened. So, where do we stand out as the church? This was a message to Israel, and these things were written for our warning, and I and I think we do it, like I said, through uh, our, our temple, our, our certain doctrines, uh, certain mind frames. We, I think we hold on to these things like rabbit's foot and we don't, uh, we don't examine ourselves like we should. Um, the passage I had to preach in Matthew when I went to preach at that local church was Matthew. It was the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew 7. So it was about judge not, lest you be judged. But what struck me about that passage was that as he's, you know, condemning our way of judging, as we get hypercritical and we condemn, right? He's not, he's not saying don't, don't examine, don't, be, don't judge like in like, you need to be discerning. But he's like, amongst your brothers and sisters, don't have this hypercritical condemning attitude towards them. This is how kingdom citizens live in the kingdom. We, we, we deal with each other in grace. But what struck me about that passage, as he says, judge not lest he be judged, because in the like manner that you judge, you will be judged. And it hit me that when we stand before the Lord, how we operated, the, the tone and tenor that we took with each other God's going to use with us at the day of judgment. Like, this is the one thing I, I, I think that the church doesn't understand. I think it's a fog. I think it's, it's kind of hazy. Like, are we going to be in a judgment? I mean, a lot of people I've talked to are like, hey, they take offense. And you talk about standing before the Lord and, and judgment. And like, hey, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I, none of that. God's, he doesn't even remember my sins. And <clears throat> so there's this, just this vague kind of fogginess. And the thing I just want to kind of encourage you guys with this morning as we wrap this up is that there is a judgment. It is inevitable for us too. We too will stand before the Lord. And to back up my case, I just want to read a few verses of that. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the matters of the heart. The Lord will judge the heart. The Lord will reveal the things done in the secret. That is for us. He will do that with us. Revelation 20, 12, And I saw the dead and the great and small standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. There will be a day that we stand and give an account, whether good or bad, to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Judgment's coming for us too, brothers and sisters. And this is what I remember Pastor Bruce would always say, my job up here 
is to prepare you for the day that you stand before the Lord. And I just wanted this morning, just as Israel was going to be judged and he judges them on their works, we're going to be judged too according to our works also. Now everybody looks at me like, what? (laughs) Our works don't save us. Nobody in the Bible was ever saved by works. Everybody in the Bible is saved by faith and faith alone. But faith that is real produces works. And so when we stand before the Lord, He examines those works. And if we have works that accord to faith, that accord to repentance, it's like a confirmation of our faith. And so, and that's what Hebrews is all about. When I first started the Chicago course on preaching, the Lord took me to the woodshed. We went through 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy was, kind of had this, this theme of lineage there. Of, um, and, and, and specifically a lineage of God's men who teach. Starting from Moses and onward. God knows who his men are. That he has called and raised up to preach and teach his word. And beware if you come against God's man. He will wreck you. That's what 2 Timothy is partially saying. But... I remember going through that and just being like, am I one of these guys or am I, am I just, is this just ambitious Andre trying to do everything? And, 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 uh, and I, I, a lot of fear struck my heart. Like, am I, am I just a pretender here? Am I, I, you know, the um, imposter syndrome, it, it hits you hard at the Chicago course. I'm preaching like, I can't do this. I, what am I doing here? And we went through that verse and there was fear. I, the Lord was, <laughs> he was, he was spanking me. But, and then we went through, and then we went through Hebrews, which if you look at Hebrews, it's judgment preaching again. How shall we be saved if we neglect such a great salvation? Or, or if we trample the blood of Christ and, and consider it a common thing, like he's preaching, uh, he's preaching judgment again and and I remember before we left uh, to Chicago, and I was struggling with the temptation to coast. I, I just, I just, I'm tired. I want to put it in neutral. I'm tired of the fighting. I'm tired of the cost of, of dealing with the, the, what we deal with in the church. And my heart was just like, Lord, I just, I want to go to Mexico for three months. And I just want to relax, sit at the pool. I am tired. And then we got into Hebrews, and oh, the Lord took me to the woodshed again. We must hold on. We must not lose our, our hope of our faith. We must fight the good fight. We must do the hard work of entering the rest. This is what always amazes me. And I, I, I think that we... And I think that we as preachers sometimes, you know, if we're not careful, like it can come off across that. Well, it's being uncareful in the preaching of, of grace and how God works. And, and so it's easy for someone to run off and sola fide and yeah, you can do whatever you want. I even heard a preacher one time on the radio in his sermon, he was, he was preaching about God bringing discipline to his people. And he's like, you can commit adultery, but you're probably going to get a pretty good spanking. And I remember listening to that. How could you ever, as a pastor, 
tell your people you can commit adultery and maybe you might get a spanking. No, you commit adultery, you're probably getting on the road going to hell. That's how serious it is. And I just thought to myself, how many men or women who heard that sermon heard that as a free ticket to indulge? It's not what God's people do. And that's why he judges Israel here at this time because God's people don't oppress the poor. They don't sell the righteous for silver. They don't reject the word of God. And that pattern continues on to the church. The people of God live lives of faith according to his word. And that's what Matthew 7 is is all about. But briefly, I'm done. I just want to... And I just want to end real quickly on a Hebrews passage. The, to, just to, to verify this, what I'm saying. <laughs> when we think of the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, this is where all the faithful in this text are judged, right? There's kind of a judgment here of the faithful. And I just want to just briefly highlight this so you can see what I'm talking about. The Lord has roared, who shall not fear? And so he says, so we got this hall of faith, and he starts off, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. We gain approval through faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, and so verses 4 through 6 or 7, verses 4 through 7, we have the men of old. We have Abel, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. These are men from the ancient world. And he brings them up. It says, faith by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And then the same thing with Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark. So God comes to him, comes to Noah, gives him this duty, says, judgment's coming, you've got to build this ark. And what does faith respond in? It responds in reverence and in godly fear and gets to work. Do you see how his faith and his work is working together? It's confirming who Noah was, a man of faith. Same with Abel, the same with Enoch. And then verses 8 through 12, 8 through 12 they, he highlights Abram and Sarah. And it says, By faith Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has a foundation, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 10, he's, he's got eyes that are looking into eternity. He, got, he has eyes that are looking for a land that's built by God, showing that his faith was connected to his heart and his desires were transformed. This rich man, Abraham, who had everything here, didn't want this. He wanted what was coming. 
And so God counts these things as righteousness to them. And then the same thing with Sarah. It says Sarah considered. By faith, Sarah considered. She reasoned. She reasoned that God is faithful. I'm going to have a child. And it's counted to her as righteousness. See what faith does? It changes the desire of our heart. changes the way we reason. changes the things that we, we live for and, and head and go for. It's heart attitude. And I, I don't... It goes on and on like this throughout. My whole point on Hebrews is that it's the hall of faith, but the faith is highlighted by their faithful obedience and living towards the Lord with hearts that are set on Him, set on eternity for His glory and their good. So we looked at Amos three, Amos one or Amos three one through eight. Judgment is inevitable. It was inevitable for them as God's people because they did not live the way that God had given them to live. And it's it's the same for us. It's inevitable for us. We too will stand before the judgment seat of God. It is inevitable. But for us who are in Christ Jesus, the condemnation has passed for those who put their faith in Christ. So, but he does call you to a life of living righteously obedient. Let us not be like faithless Israel. Let us be like Jesus, faithful true, and hoping to the end. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these examples. Father, may we take them to heart. Lord, may we be like Sarah, that we consider, we think of what you say, and we, and we reason it in our minds. May we be like Abraham and set our eyes on eternity and live for that, Lord. Oh, Lord, the, the riches here, they're so, they come and go so quickly and it's just Lord, give us that desire for riches in eternity. Lord, and that, that life that when we stand before you, Father, that we would live for that, all for your glory and our good, Jesus. Amen.